to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spastiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, two predictions for tonight. One is this is going to be an excellent show. And two, in the Subway Series, the score will be Yankees 7, match 3, Aaron Judge hits two home runs. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, Benny, you always try and squeeze in your baseball analogy. One of my memories that popped up on my Facebook feed today is a Lifelong Orioles fan was their unfortunate showing against Boston a few years ago when they lost thir- uh, 30 to 5. That sounds more like a, a football score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, hey, they're doing better, but it was it was not a good time. But um, we are going to have a good time tonight, Benny. We've got some good experience and, and a lot of good stories on the line with us. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who's on the phone with us tonight? Well, we have another very multifaceted gentleman who's had like many careers over his uh, his you know his his lifetime. So we're talking about somebody who's been in law enforcement. He's been a wrestler, a promoter. He spent uh, many years uh, as an addictions counselor and uh, throwing us a, a side gig as a right now he's working for a law firm. He's been an elder advocate, and we're talking about the one and only DC Drake. DC, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey, I'm, I'm so proud to be here. I really am. Thanks, Dan and Benny. And, you know, Benny, just as an aside, I was a huge Yankee fan, still am. And growing up as a kid, I used to go from, I lived in New Jersey and would drive to Yankee Stadium uh, when I was old enough to, every time they had a home game. And it was great in those days. And, you know, they were the days when the lean years, as I would call them. And I'd go to the stadium when they had real double headers, when you could sit in Yankee Stadium with with three thousand people sitting there, yeah, they were the days, and I, I I loved going to Yankee Stadium. I loved watching the Yankees. So, still a fan, and still love it. I, I'm old enough to have sat in the bleachers for seventy five cents for a double wow. header. Yeah, yeah, I, me- I remember it was one ticket. I think we would pay like five bucks, five fifty, something like that. I'm talking about seventy three, and. Um, a real doubleheader where you had 15 minutes between the games, yeah. one price, carry in your, you know, your uh, cooler with your soda and your sandwiches and just make a day of it. They were the days and I, oh, yeah. I, I miss those. Definitely. <clears throat> well, you don't get much for 75 cents at a ballpark anymore. <laughs> Do you get anything for 75 cents? You, you know, I, well, I, I I happen to live here in Norfolk, and our uh, the local team, the AAA affiliate, Norfolk Tide, they're the Orioles AAA team. They yeah. they occasionally do throwback night where they have the uh, the seventy five cent hot dogs, and you usually get a good crowd there. But wow, I, yeah, I I love baseball growing up. That was, and I played baseball. I played for American Legion team, so I really was a a great fan. 
Well, you're you're uh, talking to the right guys. If there's anybody I've ever known that'll slip a baseball reference into a conversation, it's Benny. I got a rep up call here, you know. (laughs) Well, getting right into it again, DC Drake. Thank you so much for your time. Last week we had uh, part two of our interviews. We we were were talking with Les Thatcher, talk about some uh, legendary wrestling stories there. And one of the topics we talked about, he gave his opinion on the recent Crockett special event, Ric Flair's last match. Um, I know, as as Benny politely pointed out, his words were probably softened due to his lifelong. I mean, he and Ric Flair have been friends for 50 years or whatever it was. Uh, you know, but we're we're going to take a little bit of a of a different path, given your background in mental health, addiction. Um, going into it, if you don't mind me asking. In your opinion, what makes Ric Flair wrestle his last match at 73? Is is the love of wrestling a legitimate addiction? Or is, is it maybe a, a different way to look at it? Because, I mean, this is long since putting your body on the line for something that you shouldn't physically be doing. Well, you know, I, I try to think about that myself. And I looked at Ric Flair's leading up to his retirement. And I don't know whether you guys know this or not, but Ric Flair did an awful lot of bleeding towards the end of his career. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, he didn't have this, the skill set anymore, so he used the blood as a way to get the crowd going. But I, I actually think it's a little bit more than that. And again, I'm, I'm putting on my mental health hat right now and thinking that Ric Flair really doesn't know who Ric Flair is. I think uh, I've worked with many cutters in the past working with addictions and many cutters uh, who like to bleed. And and I know this is getting a little bit into the woods, I suppose, but they cut for a reason They they cut because it's an outlet for emotional pain. And I think when you look at Rick, um, his history, what he's been through in his personal life, I don't think Rick knows who he is. So I think a lot of cutting is for Rick is just to actually open up himself and, and to, to know that he's still alive, to know that he still exists. And again, I know it sounds strange, and I'm using the psychological theory when I talk about it, but I think for Rick, it's a lot more than just an addiction to professional wrestling. I, I think he needs to be out there. He needs to be putting his body on the line. He needs to be feeling the pain so he feels alive. That's my theory on it. DC, and maybe this is a profound question here, but uh, is it possible that like he's lost? He he's po- in real life. Richard Fleer has right. he lost that identity? Does he only identify himself as Ric Flair? And without wrestling, there's no life because it's almost like the guy wants to die in the ring, and he'd be perfectly happy doing that. And, and and I actually believe that. And that's actually you know put a couple notes down, and they actually wrote down that he sees himself as Ric Flair and does not know who Ric Flair is. He doesn't know who he really is. And I think he's lost in that persona. And one, one of the things, uh, again, I hope you guys don't mind me talking, you know, mental health. No, no, no. I, I, I apologize for the phone. It's my office phone. It's going to go to a, it's going to go to the voicemail in a second. Um, Does your voicemail I, identify you as mad dog? Just out of curiosity. No, 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 no. I had to know no. that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I try to stay away from that, but, right. um, Especially when it comes to the legal part, I don't think uh, the clients of the law firm would would really like that too much. I don't know. Maybe they would. It's like this guy's aggressive. Wow. Well, it's elder law, so I'm not sure that. Oh, um, okay. Maybe not. <laughs> I'm not sure they would they would be too happy with that. Uh, but you know, 
when, when I deal with cutters, like 75% of the cutters I've dealt with are female. And they're diagnosed with something called borderline personality disorder, which is really a lifelong identification of a character that, that, that it's a character disorder. It's who you are as a person. And I, I jotted a couple things down, you know, with um, some of the diagnoses that you put into place when you're dealing with a borderline personality. So tell me if this doesn't sound like Mr. Flair. So one of the challenges for somebody with borderline personality is instability in relationships, oh, intense emotions <laughs> such as anger or low mood, sudden shifts in self-image, impulsive and damaging behaviors, which include substance abuse and impulsive spending, and self-harm. They also engage in things like risky sexual activity, substance abuse, excessive spending, gambling, unsafe driving, and binge eating. I'm not sure Rick, Rick engages in that, but he he fits a lot of those those a lot of that profile there absolutely he checks pretty much every one of those boxes and and the other thing that really upsets me too i i i probably shouldn't say upsets me but the cutting i mean it's bad enough that we know what wrestling is today it's bad enough that wrestling is you know it's been put out there that it's a show it's predetermined it's uh it's entertainment so if, if we accept that for what it is why are wrestlers self-mutilating? Why do they continue to use blades to cut themselves? Why not use stage blood? It really takes me back to the old Coney Island days of, of you know the um, the geek shows, you know, with the blockheads and uh, the the people that would put the pins in their faces. And why do we want that today? Once we know what wrestling is, and then for Flair to actually brag about going out and that he was going to cut himself. It seems to me that it's something that's really not needed in the in the entertainment business anymore, and it's just again, it says a lot about the mental health of Mr. Flair. You know, really, DC. It's kind of funny that you said that because, and I don't think anybody really has touched upon the whole bleeding thing because not only did he bleed in the match, but he bled in the parking lot. I mean, like you said, we we all know what wrestling's about now. What would be what's the point of bleeding? Right, and that's what really makes me think that there's something more psychological going on than it is about, you know, being an entertainer. And, again, if you watch Flair's matches as he got older, he bled a lot more, but he also bled deeper. He also cut much deeper. He, you know, there was a lot of blood with Flair. It wasn't just a nick on the head where the, you know, the sweat would, would intensify the blood. He was cutting deeper, and he was cutting arteries that you could see the blood was flowing. It was covering him so i mean there was there's something more going on there at least that's my opinion why well, we we touched on it too on the uh dan and benny page <clears throat> the our story that had come out that he admitted where he passed out slash blacked out dehydrated uh, at least at least twice during the match and he blamed dehydration and of course it came out that you know he was it was probably alcohol related and when that story broke, Ric Flair posted on his own social media page a picture of him with a beer in one hand and a water in the other. Like, oh, I guess next time I wrestle, I'll I'll make sure I drink more of more of the, the you know water than beer, and just kind right. of making a joke of, hey, I'm a 72 year old man who was so I don't want to say still intoxicated, but he was drunk enough that that it, it, the alcohol affected his ability to stay conscious during the match. Right, and you know alcohol does dehydrate you, and he's smart enough to know that. 
And then they seen other pictures of Flair with with uh, after the after the show, with the, with alcohol, and with a joint in the sand. Mm-hmm. You know, so so this is a guy who's trying to set himself as a role model, or, or you know, it's really embarrassing to me. It's embarrassing to the business of wrestling. I mean, he's got grandkids for God's sake. I mean, at what point do you grow up? Exactly, and and you know, you always look at at least when I was involved in wrestling, there were guys I would talk to who would be elder statesman to me. Rick Flair would not be somebody I would go to as an elder statesman, and he does not represent the business, at least in my opinion, very well. So one last Flair question. Do you, and, you know, Dan just mentioned about the dehydration. In my mind, the dehydration is a justification for him saying, well, I wasn't really at my best, and, you know, so therefore I want another final match. Do you think that's going to happen? Oh, I do, and, and I don't know whether you saw the. I'm sure you guys probably did. You saw the incident that happened in Puerto Rico, I believe it was, with Carlos Colon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, his Carlos exchange Cologne. with the Colons. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, if he was at his best there with those punches, again, it's an embarrassment. That that, that was the worst. That was some of the worst punching I've ever seen. And and at this, he should hang it up. That's the bottom line. He should just hang it up. Yeah, as a. As a lifelong wrestling fan, the when the video leaked of him and and Carlos Colon, I don't even want to say punching, but that exchange at ringside, that was active. Act has what's the proper way to word that? Literally painful to watch. Like, I agree. That, that hurt. That hurt my sensibilities as a wrestling fan. And that's the thing I don't, I don't understand is is as fans being smart today, and I, I hate to use that word, but being smart today. How can you look at that and be entertained by that? That's just that's all I can really say about about Rick at this point. Well, and, and the other thing is, you know, and DC, you being a baseball baseball fan, maybe you can identify this with this as well. But I remember when uh, the the Mets traded for Willie Mays at right towards the end of the 1972 season, and then I guess they, not. I guess they made it into the World Series against Oakland the following year. So 1973, Willie, Willie Mays is 42 years old. And he, I mean, he should have retired three or four years before. But all I remember is him stumbling in the outfield, trying to mm. trying to catch a routine fly ball. And you know, I mean, Willie May should be remembered for that 19, uh, 1954 catch in the World Series right. against Vic Wirtz, where it was like literally one of the greatest catches in baseball history. That over the shoulder catch. But in my mind, you know, I remember Willie as a forty two year old guy stumbling around in the outfield. Do you think a lot of people are going to remember Ric Flair this way instead of? You know the the, the one hour matches with Ricky Morton back in the eighties and nineties. Well, you know, I think the older wrestling fan will remember those matches back in the eighties, but the new breed of wrestling fan, I'm not quite sure they understand what wrestling is all about. So they're going to remember Flair as being a joke. And I don't again as as a baseball fan, do you remember when he used to bring in um, was it Max Paxton, the, the, the clown, the yeah, baseball? the clown umpire, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he would come in, but he wouldn't be in. He wouldn't be in the actual game. He would do something outside of the game, and so you could understand when they would bring him in as a joke, because it was it was meant to be a joke. It wasn't part of the game. They bring Flair in as a reality. You know, it's supposed to be part of the match, and and that should be totally. He's turned into a clown, and and so is a lot of wrestling turned into a clown show, and that's why I think a lot of the newer fans cannot appreciate what Flair was. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and they never will. I respect that. Getting to wrestling, though, Benny, uh, we were talking about it before the show. 
uh, your interview recently with Dr. Mike, Buddy Satello. We're going to try and cover, obviously, a little different ground. We don't want to repeat too many questions, but we do have to mm -hmm. ask uh, something that comes up every show because the answer is always different, and it's always great to hear the unique stories. Uh, do you remember when the wrestling bug bit you? At what point you said, I'm a fan? And at what point you went from I'm a fan to I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Wrestling is going to be my career. I remember probably I was, it was 1967, 68 when my father was watching wrestling. And I could take it or leave it at that point. But there was a wrestler who came in who I tried later in life. And we'll talk about that, who I tried to model my character after a little bit was King Curtis. Oh, yeah. And he came into WWE and WWF at the time, and he scared the crap out of me. He was one of the first guys that really made me think that wrestling was real. There was something about his presentation, how he came into the ring, the foaming from the mouth, the uh, the crazy eyes. Uh, he's the one that, that really got me involved. And then uh, watching Bruno, um, my father was really my role model growing up. He got hurt probably in the late 60s at work ended up breaking his back, multiple surgeries. And so he was laid up in the bed most of the time. So Bruno almost became my de facto father. He, he, Bruno stood for the things my dad stood for. So when I would follow Bruno, you know, it was like watching my father for what everything Bruno stood for. So that really was the bug to me. And then I started going, when I, again, when I could drive, if it wasn't the Yankees, it was going to the Philadelphia Arena on Tuesday nights for the TV tapings and then Wednesday nights in Hamburg. And that's when the bug really bit me. You know, when I got to talk to some of the guys outside, when you know, they were waiting in a parking lot or because uh, it was hot inside at the field house in Hamburg, they were standing outside. And the more I talked with them, the more I watched the matches, the more I wanted to be a wrestler. And that really was when the wrestling bug bit me. And you were trained by a gentleman, I believe, named Tito Torres? Tito Torres, yeah. He was, Tito was working for Vince. Um, as a enhancement talent at the time. And one night he, I believe it was at the Hamburg field house. They were handing out little, little leaflets about training to be a wrestler. And I, and Tito was handing them out and he was in Jersey city, which wasn't far from where I was. And so I ended up going there to be trained to be a wrestler. So you, you broke in pretty in the early eighties with the Savoldis and, but within a couple of years, you've, you founded your own promotion, which was the Continental Wrestling Alliance. So I, I, I'm thinking, if my math's right, you would have been right around 25 at that point. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you were still gain, you were gainfully employed with the uh, with the state of New Jersey as a corrections officer. So a two part question: one is, you know, what made you get into promotions at such an early age? You know, normally that's something if you're you know a wrestler at the end of their career. And how the second part of the question is. <laughs> How did you manage to, you know, remain gainfully employed with the state of New Jersey full time and throw and 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 promote it as well? Well, again, I, I love wrestling and getting a chance to work uh, with Mario and um, and Angela Savoldi. I learned very quickly that being on the road and also having kids at home was not something I could do. So I wanted to be involved in wrestling. So I decided there was actually a guy named Paul. Swanger, who wrestled as a concrete cowboy out of Philadelphia, who had the Continental Wrestling Alliance. We got together, and um, my role was, listen, I love wrestling, but I don't want to be on the road. Let's open up a little small promotion here in Pennsylvania. Um, we worked out of the 
out of the uh, VFW Hall in Eastern Pennsylvania. I got a bunch of guys. We trained them over there. I was friends with a guy who had the local television station. So we worked a deal with them, you know, to do a weekly wrestling show with them. And um, my goal was really to be able to do local wrestling, keep my job, and let other guys who wanted to work a job too have their outlet who love wrestling. And that was really my goal. I, I really did not want to be traveling. Uh, I just wanted to do wrestling and I wanted to have a, you know, I wanted to have the, the promotion there. I wanted it in my backyard and it was, it worked out for a while. So was it, I mean, was it pretty much a, a weekend thing, the CWA? It, it actually would turn into a weekend thing. We did. We, we I modeled the uh, the television tapings after WWF. We did three shows every time we did a taping. The way I got the house in there was I would give away free tickets to like the local children's homes, and you know we had them come in, and we sold tickets to it very very cheaply, and we would usually do Friday and Saturday night wrestling shows. Did a lot of the local state fairs. And, you know, it was, I wasn't getting rich on it, but it was, it was allowing me to live out that dream I had and a lot of the other guys too. Well, keeping that, uh, timetable, you, in 1986, you, you sell the, the CWA to Robert Raskin, who then renames it to the national Reddit, excuse me, the national wrestling federation. Uh, you continue to do the promoting. You also continue to wrestle, uh, at the time you defeat Rocky Jones. Um, he sadly passed away a few weeks ago, former guest of the show and a great yeah, interview. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah so he's sad. a great guy. I mean, I, yeah, yes. I, I, you know, talking up with Rocky, I never knew he was, he, he had, he was sick, you know, until I, I saw the uh, Facebook post. It was sad. I, I, I thought surely that that must be a mistake. And then I saw, you know, a few people comment on it. It's like, wow, it was a shocker. Yeah, yeah it was. I agree. Yeah. Considering, I'm sorry to cut you off, but but considering when he we had him as a guest on the show and it was a great interview, uh, you know, lucid, a lot of good stories. And you would never have guessed, given the stories that have come out since that, that he was sick at the time he talked to us either. And that's I don't know, maybe just hit it well or, or it's one of those things yeah. that catches up to you too fast. But it really it was sad, to, sad to hear. Yeah, I agree. It was sad. I was shocked by it. I really was. It was like a punch in the gut. But you, uh, I don't know, going back to, to Rocky Jones, you, you defeated him and became the first NWF champion. This is when you start to change your persona, which you were talking about earlier with the inspirations to Mad Dog Drake, the foaming at the mouth, the dark eyes, the collar. Was this kind of a... a if you, if you don't mind putting us kind of through that thought process of the character evolution, obviously you explained earlier your inspiration for it, but what was the idea of, of to, to truly embrace the mad dog for the first time? Well, we'll get back to, you know, selling the, the business over to Raskin. And when we say selling, you know, there wasn't really a, a big money deal there. What, what I had to offer was my media presence, you know, having a television, uh, a television person, you know, having a television available, having a number of stations on on the, uh, you know, on the line. I was involved with local radio stations. So I had that to offer. So when Bob came in and um, decided he wanted to make it the National Wrestling Federation, 
I ended up leaving the Department of Corrections at that point because it was going to be a full-time commitment to make this thing work. And again, being a champion, it wasn't an ego thing at all. It was at a necessity because I was always there. You know, I was, uh, I would be showing up every night and we needed to heal, a heel champion to work against a lot of the baby faces that were available, like Sergeant Slaughter, um, Jewel Strongbow. So I, I had to change over to a heel. My first thought, again, working in the Department of Corrections, was I wanted to be a crazy guy. So I started just darkening my eyes so it looked like a little bit crazy. I messed my hair up. And I started going out in the ring like that, being crazy, chasing fans around. And then I, people, a couple of people would yell, that guy's a mad dog. That guy's a mad dog. And I said, well, you know what? Let's take it further in that direction. So at that point, I started wearing the collar. And then I remembered King Curtis. I started filming from the mouth. And that character just took off. And again, that was the character I used with National Wrestling Federation. I got to work you know, with a lot of the guys like like Slaughter. I worked with him, I think it was 87, almost the whole summer at state fairs and worked with Billy Graham. And, uh, you know, I had it. We needed the heel. We needed somebody dependable, somebody that was always going to be there. And that was me. That's why I was a champion. It wasn't an ego thing at all. It was a business thing. So, DC, you wrestled with them through 1988, and then you started your own promotion uh, called Pro Star Wrestling, and then you imported several of the NWF stars like Sergeant Slaughter, Strongbow, and Larry Winters. And you, I mean, that was a great rivalry, rivalry the two of you. Yeah. Uh, another two-part question. So why did you uh, part with the NWF, and, and what made you decide to form your own promotion instead of going to wrestle for another one? Was Again, was it just the convenience of being able to stay at home? That was one of the things, but another thing happened too. So with the NWF, I, I was, again, behind the scenes, I was a television producer. I was also marketing the product. I was on the phone, you know, trying to get us in the different radio uh, television stations. And it was a different time, you know, obviously, you know, it was still regional. We were still able to get into regional TV stations. We had quite a few in, small independent stations running our shows. And we were on the verge, the NWF I'm talking about now, we were on the verge of a pretty big TV deal uh, with a company called Creative um, or Eminem Syndicators out of Camden, New Jersey. They were syndicating HR Puff and stuff. And they were going to try to put our show together as a package with HR Puff and stuff and syndicate the show. And uh, as you, you probably got, you guys probably remember HR Puff and stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of clearances with that state with that show. Well, what ended up happening, the money people, which I was not one of, you know, the money people ended up getting into a big argument who was going to be this, who was going to be that. And the people at the top of the NWF just broke up. And I said, my last show, I was, uh, I believe it was in the Pittsburgh area. And I got out there, the ring showed up, only one ring guy. I helped set up the ring. I helped. I was booking the show. I was doing the business, you know, counting the money, meeting with the athletic commission. I had to go out there and work. And Wendy Richter said something to me. I forget what it was. It was something really snotty. At that point, I said, you know, it really embarrassed me for what she said. And I said to her, you know, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even be working here. You know, you wouldn't even be working tonight. Wow. But afterwards, I said, you know, I've had enough. You know, 
arguing with the guys uh, over money and you know i couldn't do it i just couldn't do it all anymore it wasn't worth it to me i had another career outside of the wrestling business i didn't need that and um i just walked away i can only imagine it's like you're going from being you know responsible for yourself as a wrestler now you're responsible for what you know 40 50 other guys and all their problems Right. I mean, I, they were the show in West Virginia we had where uh, I, I don't like to talk about people. We talked about that, but I had I had a guy I used, well-known guy I used many times and wanted a, wanted a ton of money. And if we had a wonderful house, 4,000, 5,000 people, he'd try to get more money out of me. But if we had a house of 800, he never offered to give any money back. <laughs> and I got it's so always, sick always of that. the way it works, right? The, oh, yeah, I mean, always. Now, now I'm thinking of uh, you know baseball. You know the guy has a great season. He wants to renegotiate. He has yep. a crappy season. You don't ever hear that. Oh, you never hear that. You know, and then nobody ever offered. You know, but when the promoter made money, they would be upset. <laughs> you know, but if the promoter lost money. Nobody ever offered to dip into the pocket to help. You know, and I still read that today. I still read st- stories where we're talking about you know independent promoters making money. Why you know why is it that promoters can't make money in the wrestling business? Especially if you're treating your talent fairly, which I think we did. I mean, it's like any other you business. Know. You know, you put you put the time in. You know, you 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 do it right. Why shouldn't you prosper? Yeah, I mean, there were days where you know, running the shows where I would take tapes, the TV tapes, and run them to the stations. You know, that that was something that I did as a promoter. Put the posters out, well, distribute the tickets. There was work involved in that. You know, it's it's not like it is today. You know, you. You can go on YouTube today and be anywhere. It wasn't like that in those days. And then another thing that happened, and I, again, I don't know whether we touched on it. I don't remember whether they talked with Dr. Mike about it or not. But I actually gave Paul Heyman a job. He was one of our TV commentators. Wow. And he also worked uh, with me as a uh, as a manager at one point, as Paul E. Dangerously. And some of the NWF tapes are on, are on TV where you can see Paul working as the manager. Uh, he was managing myself and Damian Kane in a match against the Fantastics in Reading. Oh, wow. And you can, also, you can also see Paul doing a TV commentary. And one night in, it was in uh, New York. I think it was Suffer, New York. We had a big show up there. We had the Road Warriors on the show. We had a lot of people on the show. Paul calls me up and says, uh, I need to talk to you. So I said, okay. He said, tonight's my last TV show. And that's when he was going down with WCW or with, I forget who it was at the time. I don't know if it was uh, WCW or JCP still. Maybe it, was, maybe it was JCP, but he was leaving. He was going down there to do the TV. And then I had negotiated a deal with, do you remember the Financial News Network? Yes, FNN, yes. Yes, so they were a nationwide show. I also had clearance with them to put the NWF on there. They called me up. The week before the show was ready to air, I said they received a, a letter from somebody, from an attorney in New York, saying that if they aired any show, that there would be a copyright infringement. And I was there told by somebody at the network that it was Paul Heyman who called. He did not want to be seen on the show because of his work with JCP. So oh, I just wow. got so disgusted with the business and so disgusted with the people I, you know, reached out to. And, you know, uh, that, that's why I walked away from it. And then it probably... A year later, maybe eight months later, I decided to open up Pro Star Wrestling and did a couple of shows and fairs. And, I, and then that, that got to me, too. I said, I, I'm done with it. You know, I'm done promoting. I'm done running it. 
I'm just going back to my job, my career outside the business, which I loved. And that was it until Joel Goodhart called me. So DC, just, just out of curiosity, the, the NWF, what area did it cover? And if you could uh, name some of the regulars and then some of the other people who you had on your shows. The NWF was all, actually all over the country. Uh, we were every place. And we were in Canada. We were all over the United States. We did tours in uh, Greece. Um, we Our television show was on in the West, in the Antigua. It was on in uh, parts of South America. We were all over the place. People didn't realize how big we were at that point. And if we would have gotten that that clearance with HR with Eminem Syndicated, we would have even been bigger. You know, we and the production work was done by uh, even though we had a local station doing it first, we ended up using the same production company that Vince was using, which was Channel 39 out of Allentown. We ended up hiring him to do our our wrestling shows. So we had a we had a, a pretty a pretty decent technical show, and we had a you know some pretty decent talent. So when it comes to talent, we'll talk about we had Wendy Richter as a women's champion. We had uh, the Fantastics working for us. We had Jules Strongbow, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow. We had um, the Road Warriors. Wow. So we had we had a lot. I, I probably we had Doctor D, David Schultz. Um, we had quite a talent roster. You you mentioned uh, getting the call from Joel Goodhart. Obviously, that was the call. Join the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance. Uh, you renewed your rivalry with Larry Winters that we talked about earlier. Uh, you win the TWA Championship, beating Rock and Rebel in the tournament final. Unfortunately, you know you you mentioned you're be, you're injured in the process. Uh, then, of course, the the pro, the story goes: Goodhart sold out to Ty Gordon. He renamed the promotion to Eastern Championship Wrestling, becoming ECW. And you actually wrestled on a couple of the ECW cards before retiring again in 92. Uh, this is, you would have been 34, 35 at the time. <clears throat> so uh, continuing with that story, what decided, what made you decide to retire from active wrestling? What would be again at that point? Well, when I was with Joel, right towards the end of my run with Joel, I worked with a guy named J.T. Smith. I don't know whether you know J.T. or not. But we were at a, a – Joel had a series of matches called Bar Wars, which was in Center City at a bar, and it was every Tuesday night, I think, uh, he had a show there. And during one of the matches with J.T., he grabbed me like he was putting me in a bear hug. So I pushed back, the, the you know, the pushes head back a little bit, and he went from that to pull me into the ring with a suplex. When I did that, my foot caught the top rope and it came down on my neck. And mm. when I landed on my neck, I actually was couldn't move for about 15 seconds. And I ended up leaving there, going to the hospital. I ended up with a brachial plexus injury that killed my deltoid muscles. And so I lost my shoulder muscles. And at that point, I said, you know, I was millimeters probably from being crippled. And I wasn't going to do that anymore. And plus, injuring a shoulder muscle ended up with some problems for me later in life, too, since I had both my shoulders replaced. Because from not having the muscle and constantly using the shoulders, I just had arthritis so bad. So both shoulders ended up being replaced. But I, I, I finished up with John. I was done with wrestling again. I retired again. 
And then I got a call from, uh, I, th I think it may have been Todd, asking me if I wanted to do something with Cactus Jack. And they were doing something called um, Funk in the Box. That was the name of the show, I think they, they named it, where I would come out to work with Cactus Jack and then Terry Funk would come out of a, a dumpster and attack uh, Cactus Jack. And then I, then I would fight back to the locker room with Tommy Dreamer. And so we did that. We did that spot. And I wasn't in the best shape at the time, but, but Paul wanted me to come back and do something with Tommy. But the stuff that I saw in the locker room that night was something I did not want to be involved in. You know, the drugs I saw, the, the pot smoking, the alcohol. I said, I can't, I don't want to be a part of this. That was, that was the end for me. Just curious, obviously, the the ECW locker room here inter interviews through the years from like, you know, Tommy Dreamer and the Sandman and, and a lot of the, the originals uh, that were around at the time told stories of the chaotic, let's put it politely, chaotic nature of the ECW locker room. Uh, I guess you're you're confirming a lot of that. That's not just old timers blowing smoke. No, that was real. And I, you know, probably the first 20 minutes in that locker room, I actually wanted to walk out. But, you know, I wanted to honor my commitment. And again, Cactus Jack, um, something else a lot of people don't know. I actually gave Cactus one of his first matches out in the Pittsburgh area with NWF. Dominic Danucci came up to me at the show and said, listen, I got a kid here. I want to know if you want to use him for the show tonight. And that's when he was going out with the pistols, you know, the little pistols. He had, you know, like a little guns at his side and yep. bang, bang. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that, he was young, but he was crazy. And I, I loved him, to be honest with you. And I gave him, you know, I put him on a show that night and really was enamored with him. So I was really happy to see him when I saw him, you know, really make a name for himself was great. The, the yeah, other Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say that, yeah, the locker room. 20 minutes in that locker room, I said, I, I can't do this. That this is, I felt like I was the place was going to get raided at some point. Mm. So it wasn't a good place. You mentioned Dominic Danucci, the the unofficial patriarch, uh, godfather of our of our show together, Benny. Our very first guest. Mm. What a guy. Oh, yeah, I agree. A great guy. Talk about a man with no filter whatsoever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we just we actually just had a uh, we just had a, a memorial show of sorts that was nice to to get some of his friends and, and talk about. And I mean, we said it, I don't know, a hundred times. It feels like on the show, if it wasn't for his early support and the success of that first interview we did with him. I mean, here we are. Eight, more than 80 episodes later that would never have happened wow. without him so yep. i mean all these years later he's still influencing wrestling yep and you know and since training at jack and there was a couple other guys he had brought too i don't remember who they were but yeah he shane douglas he was a great guy yeah maybe but shane was it wasn't shane there was a couple other <laughs> younger guys that we used later on some of the nwf tv tapings dc one i'm sorry I didn't mean to. No, I was just saying it never rose the same prominence that Jack did. Okay. Well, you, I, I admire you deeply because I, 
I always feel like I'm, you know, even if I'm two years older than you are, and I've always considered myself a very motivated individual. And so just, uh, and I'm make sure I'm reading this, make sure I got this right. So you had a 10 year career with the uh, department of corrections, and then 10 plus years as a wrestler and promoter. And then at that point you decide to go into addictions counseling. You get a master's degree in psychological counseling. You run the living and recovery community program at a hospital. And so another two part question, what made you get into addiction counseling and what what like what was that like on a day to day basis? Well, in, you know, addiction counseling really came from a family issue. My grandmother was a was a horrible alcoholic, but a wonderful woman. But I can say, you know, probably up until I was a teenager, I don't think I ever knew my grandmother sober. And that all came about as a result of the early death of my grandfather. She ended up becoming an alcoholic. She also went through polio. You know, ended wow. up with one side of her body paralyzed, but was able to live life with polio, you know, use a, a, a crippled arm. And and so I admired her, but I also saw what addiction did. And when my grandfather died, and again, we're going back now probably to the mid-60s when he passed away. They got a, my grandmother got a settlement for like $10,000, you know, for life insurance from the, the company they worked for. And she just went into the bottle at that point. And I remember my uncle at the time, he was young, he was in high school, had no idea what to do to help her. I mean, he was just drunk. He's dealing with the death of his father and trying to deal with his mother who's an alcoholic. He took about $8,000, which she had put into the refrigerator, and he burned it. And it turned into a big scandal in our town. You know, someone stole the money, and it turned out he took it. They found the money burned in the barrel in the back. And I mean, he literally burned it? He literally burned it because wow. he was a kid. He didn't know what else to do with the money to get his mom to stop drinking. Wow. And so, you know, I remember that incident. And then, again, working with the Department of Corrections, how many people there were locked up because of drugs and watching their families. And wasn't as much watching the attic as it was watching what it was doing to the families. And then again, getting involved with wrestling. And I don't know how many times I intervened with, you know, working as a booker with guys that were so drunk and I had to escort back to rooms and getting calls from the hotels, you know, getting somebody out of a bar. And so I said, you know, there's something I can do. that really motivated me. I ended up going back, getting my degree and going into addiction counseling. Mm. Let me, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and I ended up, you know, being a counselor, but also running programs. I, I ran programs at Fall River as a director, Fall River, Massachusetts, as a director there. I opened up many homeless shelters. And then when I took the job at the hospital, you know, I, it was a, a great job, a great program. And again, you know, I, I like working with addicts, but I, I don't fully buy into that they can't control what they do because I've seen addicts be able to stop drinking when they really were motivated for something like staying out of jail. My job, which I like to do was working with the families and helping the families deal with this because the families were the ones that suffered more than any, any addict ever did. Well, let me ask you something. I just more, more of a curiosity on my end. I actually worked for a couple of years. This was what early uh mid mid 2000s uh i mm-hmm. worked for a few years in, in 
corrections and where I where I lived the, the in Maryland they called it the Department of Detention Facilities they they were real adamant not to use the word corrections uh, yeah. but I was curious in your experience and if you've if you've followed anything do you think that uh I, I guess I'm, I'm just like I said I'm just more morbid curiosity as, as getting to talk to someone who's been in there as well how, how things have changed over the years as far as as being easier being harder what's different uh having the experience you do i was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit well i, I guess to be honest I'm, I'm a pretty conservative guy and I, I don't always buy into a lot of the liberal thinking today and not from a standpoint of, of being you know from a conservative standpoint being somebody that believes people should be punished but seeing what happens to people without having guidelines in place. For instance, uh, here in the state of Massachusetts, the way they dealt with addiction here was to consider something to be a successful treatment episode, they lowered the standards. So it used to be at one point you had to be clean and sober for 90 days. By the time I left the treatment of, of addiction, if you weren't, if you didn't use or end up drunk in 30 days, it was successful. You know, people do respond to guidelines. People do respond to things. You know, what they ended up doing, you know, you probably see it now, you know, with uh, shooting galleries or actually the, the government's actually giving people free needles and clean needles and, and uh, giving them safe places to shoot up. You're just making the problem worse. And by thinking that people don't have any control over their behavior is absolutely the wrong way to go about it. So I, I don't agree with where things are heading. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's playing itself out when we see the amount of crime that's going on and we see what cities like Philadelphia have become. You know, it's really, really sad is how we don't look at people as having any kind of self-control. We, we need to allow them to do certain things. It's just it's, it's horrible for them and it's horrible for the families and it's horrible for society. Absolutely. DC, back to wrestling real quick for a second. Uh, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I watched one of your, your matches, your uh, title matches with uh, Larry Winters. And, uh, you know, it was just classic as far as, you know, storyline and psychology, telling a story in the ring. You know, you're the heel. You got the cheating manager. You know, the referee's back's turned. You know, the manager gets a shot in. You don't really see that anymore. Um, you know, I if I were to turn on Raw tonight or last night, I, I'm going to have a hard time even figuring out who the baby face is and who the heel is. And how do you, as a fan from since 1968, I have to know who to cheer for. Um, so I, I don't know if you, do you watch much of the, the um, current product? And if so, what do you think of it? From, from what I've seen, again, I, I don't watch much of it. If I watch it at all, I, I go back and I do watch the old shows, you know, and I've seen a lot of the old shows are showing up right now on YouTube, which is great. Um, the clear cut good guy, bad guy is just so necessary, at least in my opinion. But now with the way they've got people trained, especially the younger wrestling fan, it's all about they they tell you what the story is. They're more worried about letting the fan know that they're telling a story. Um, they're more worried about telling the fan that their friends outside the ring. It, it just it, it's lost its appeal to me. I mean, I come from old school where you have the, the heel and the baby face. 
you had the you had that clear cut thing. Yes, yeah, sometimes you know the heel would win, the heel would get over, but before the blowout match occurred, you know you knew at the end the heel would get beat, the good guy would win. There was always a a moral to the story, and it gave people hope not only there but also in real life that in real life things work out like that. Sometimes people get over on you, but in the end, if you keep doing the right thing, there will be some justice for most people. And that's why I think wrestling has, has gotten so blurred today. And that's why wrestling was so successful in the past. And also why it's not really doing the kind of numbers that it used to do. I, I have to add, uh, and it's a plug for my friend, uh, Evan Gin- or our friend Evan Ginsburg's movie, 350 Days. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a documentary about yeah. wrestlers. And yeah. my it, it's it's phenomenal. It's it just it, it's a must-see. But my favorite character in the movie is a gentleman by the name of Howard Jerome. I'm not even sure what he wrestled. I believe it was a German heel. But mm-hmm. I, I, he said something that was so profound. He said, there is a fundamental longing in the human heart for good to triumph over evil. And like out of all Absolutely. the lines in the movie, that stuck with me. To me, like that is the entire premise of professional wrestling until Vince McMahon turned it into a circus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what the fans love. They, they, they would go there and, yeah, they would be frustrated. And yeah, you know, the heel would get over sometimes. It'd be frustration. But in the end, good always triumphed. And and I agree, that is in the human heart. That's part of what we seek as humans, is that there's going to be, in the end, no matter what we're going through, there is going to be something positive that comes out of it. If you don't have that hope, then what's the point of going on? Well, I mean, for all those years, Vince McMahon Sr., you know, it, it was so formulaic. They bring in a new heel, you know, from another territory. And then mm-hmm. he'd start, you know, demolishing the prelim guys. And usually there'd be something with Arnold Scullin, uh, you know, an altercation with Arnold Scullin, who was Bruno's manager. Yeah. And so it, it just built. And maybe like maybe Bruno was going to be was on TV being interviewed by Ray Morgan. And he got attacked by Toro Tanaka or, you know, Hans Mortier, whoever it was, George Steele. And it, it built up this, you know, this this uh, anticipation of Bruno getting this guy in the garden and destroying him. And yeah. I mean. That lasted, I mean, it wasn't like, that lasted for like over 15 years. Yeah. And it sold out every time. I mean, make no mistake about people in their hearts knew what wrestling was. But what they were getting out of it was so much more. They wanted to believe. And that's what it was for me. I wanted to believe. I wanted to go down and believe that life, no matter how bad it can be or how many bad deals you're dealt, life can be good. And I think that 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 worked for so many people, and now it's gone. It's just it doesn't exist anymore. Do you think if we can expand on that for a little bit, something that's come up, we've talked about on the show numerous times, the lack of not just I, I hate to use the word, but the lack of realism that you know the 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 Bruno you mentioned Bruno, and we talk about Bruno and and. You know, you had this this good triumphing over evil, but it was also be it be it Bruno, be it Backlund, even to a point. Some of the early 1980s W. You talk about Vince, the, the early WWF with you know Hogan and Andre and some of those, where the matches looked like. Yes, you're right. We knew what wrestling was, but the matches they still came off. The announcers talked about it. The 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 in the ring, the mannerisms, the psychology. The matches came off as if they were a real athletic contest. You watch wrestling nowadays, and it's a hundred super kicks. It's the flips. It's the 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 spots that are so obviously coordinated. I've seen 
re- more realistic looking stunt shows. And yeah. I'm I'm wondering if, if you think that's part of it with the the loss of the connection where I'm watching wrestling and even if I want to suspend my disbelief, I can't believe what I'm watching is two people actually trying to fight or hurt each other. No, and I agree 100 percent. It's, you know, back again, we go back to those days, there was a finishing move. A guy had a finish. When it came, you know what it was. Stan Hansen with Hilaria, the big finish move. Today, if Stan Hansen was in the ring or someone like Stan Hansen, he'd do it 30 times. You know, you see the, the, these guys getting up after some, what should be finishing moves. Like I said, the same thing, 30, it looks like a ballet today. All these high spots, all this flying, all this flipping. You know, you see guys, I, I watched this, I think it was AEW, where five guys stood below the ring post waiting for the guy to jump. <laughs> How realistic is that? But I think the other piece of that too, and I was thinking about it, you know, when we talked, when we went back and forth the other day, is I think the lack of a commission was something that's missing too. Like for me, wrestlers were always bigger than life. You went in, other guys were muscular, they were big, they were scary. Today we have guys in the business that weigh 160 pounds, 170 pounds. And again, I'm not saying they're not athletic, they are, and you know, but. They don't have that special thing. Wrestlers were special back in those days. You know, with the commission gone, you have this stuff happening. I'm I'm watching some of these YouTube matches from guys today. Anybody can have a YouTube show. Uh, There's no commissions, which means that people are running shows, you know, 100 shows running across this country with maybe 30 fans sitting there, most of them probably family members. The guys weigh 150 pounds, 160 pounds. Back when the commissions were there, you wouldn't have that. You know, the the commissions, yes, you know, I, you know, there were days when I dealt with the commission. I had to pay taxes. I had to pay for referees to be there. I had to pay for the judges. But I also had to pay for a doctor. And maybe Vince can afford a doctor. Maybe Tony Khan can afford a doctor. But small independent shows can't. So you have guys getting hurt, you know, no commission being present. You have guys getting hurt in matches. Um, back in those days, wrestlers had to be licensed. They had to pass a background check. They had to have a physical. That's not happening today. Uh, a promoter needed a bonder on the show. That protected the sponsor and the fans. If nobody showed up, people got paid. And you also had to have insurance. I, I, I'm speaking for Pennsylvania, New Jersey, other places. You had to have insurance on the show. So if a wrestler got hurt, there was coverage in place. Was it expensive for a promoter? Yes, but it also protected the wrestlers. That's not there today. You know, so you got guys sneaking through, you know, that aren't healthy, that shouldn't be in the ring, that shouldn't be doing things because they're not trained properly. And it really doesn't look good for the business. You know, getting back to Larry Winters and that that match, and this this is kind of leading to a question. I mean, I watched that video and then I, 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 I looked at some of the comments and, you know, I guess my first comment is if you, if you watch that match, nobody did a hurricane Rana. Nobody did one of those, those jumps, you know, the, 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 you know, where like five people had to wait there and catch, you know, signal for a fair catch. There was none of that. I don't think you guys even left your feet, but you kept the, you kept the crowd involved for the whole match. And, you know, sometimes I wonder like, do, does, is all, you know, do you need to power bomb somebody up a, a table in every match and, you know, do you need to jump off a balcony and, you know, things like that. But, 
Um, I guess you know, one of the, the quotes that I read was uh, a fantastic match and a great wrestling champion referring to you. I know he had a career outside of wrestling. However, if he turned his attention to the business full time, he would have been more of a legend, a good man outside of the ring as well, which and I totally agree with that comment. But um, so I guess my question is, did it was it ever an option? Because when you started in the early 80s, there was still AWA was still alive. Uh, uh, I guess Mid-South was still actually booming. Uh, Florida, a a lot of the territories were still in existence. Was that ever an option for you as far as, you know, you just leaving uh, corrections and seeing how how far you could go in the world of wrestling by by wrestling in some of the territories? It was an option, and I had several offers. But again, it it came down to the fact that I also had kids. You know, the money back then wasn't what it is today. And certainly being on the road and, you know, paying for your own expenses and having a family at home and trying to make as you know, I always wanted to have something to fall back on. And that was something that was always in my mind. Um, if probably if um, I hadn't had kids at the time, you know, I probably would have moved on. But again, I, I really don't know. It just, I was so enamored with wrestling at one point And then at another point, I was so sick of it that I, I didn't want anything to do with it. So I'm not really sure, uh, but the, but the options were there for me and, and I just, I just never followed up on it. You know, being a finance guy and I guess, you know, especially you with the promoting, I mean, that's, that's a whole story in itself, but as a wrestler in a territory, I, I think to myself, if that was me, cause I, I've been a budget guy. Most of my career, I've been in finance. How do you yeah. even figure out how much money you're going to make? Because Every night, I mean, you you don't know how much it's it's all depending on the house, and you're right. you're operating fifty two weeks a year like that. How how do you even do that? Like with a family, especially. And that was always my consideration. I, you know, I, as much as I loved wrestling at the time, I also had to be realistic about where it was in life, and uh, that's why I always had two things going. And when it came push came to shove, I knew the you know, having that career outside was more important to me than being in the wrestling business. But, you know, you, you were talking about the fans. Uh, I wanted to get back to that one. I still have a picture. It was one of my favorite pictures I have put away. I used to love getting on the fans. The fans chasing them around, going after them. It was always something that I did with my character and playing with them. And, and like you said, there were nights where I'd only go in a ring for two minutes, but I would spend 15 minutes outside with the fans and they still felt like they got their money's worth. And there was a guy that used to come to the shows all the time. It was down in our TV tapings. We were doing them down in uh, Brick Township, New Jersey, at, at a roller rink or ice hockey arena down there. And the guy had a, he had a glass eye. And I say this because he would be on me all the time. So I started calling him Crystal. <laughs> and so when it would come out, but it was it was a friendly banter, you know. It wasn't I wasn't mean to him. I say hey, you're here again, huh, Crystal? And I remember right towards the end of leaving NWF, I got a got got a piece of mail from him. He had a, he sent me a picture of him holding his eye in his hand. <laughs> I only have camera. eye for you. Yeah, I, I still have that picture. It was it was great, and that's the the kind of interaction I love with the fans. I used to love you know, playing with the fans. It was great because I loved it when I was a kid, you know, I loved it when I went there. 
And I just remember what made me excited and made me happy. So I just tried to replicate that. I think that's one of the things, you know, everybody says, well, Vince McMahon took wrestling to a higher place. But, you know, you remember like in Memphis, uh, every Monday night, you could go to the Mid-South Coliseum and watch Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee on, you know, Florida, you know, every Tuesday night, you'd have Dusty Rhodes against Boris Malenko. And I would think, you know, and like what you were saying about the, you know, the, your promotion, if, if you're going on a weekly basis or even like, you know, twice a month or whatever it is, you're developing a personal connection with those wrestlers. And that's something that, I mean, I'm in Tampa, so I, they might come mm-hmm. to Amelie Arena maybe, maybe twice a year on a, on a good year. But I mean, and now it's so scripted and and hyped, and it's so impersonal to me. But back then it was personal. I mean, that that glass yeah. eye guy. I mean, that was personal. Yeah, and and uh, when we were doing the show at the VFW in Easton, we were doing the TV show, just still working as the Continental Wrestling Alliance. We had fans actually bring a birthday cake for wrestlers who they knew their birthdays. You know, so that was that that was a big connection. It was a huge connection, and also by inviting the children's homes that we were doing over there, they had a connection with the fans because here are kids that are, that are orphans or taken out of the house because of family issues. They had some place to go. They had, they had heroes they could worship. They had guys that they could get along with. You know, it had a connection. If you don't have fans and give them what they want, then you really don't have wrestling. That's what wrestling is really all about. I couldn't have said it better myself. And that was something Benny, uh, a recent interview that that's come up a few times on social media with uh, Triple H now that he's in, in more in charge of the WWE, where he he pretty much said something along the lines of Vince took wrestling from the dimly lit smoke filled bar into the main stage of the arenas. And of course, that's immediately followed by, like Benny was saying, these are, you know, here's here's Memphis, here's Texas and here's Florida in the 70s and, you know. 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Uh, we talked about Jim Cornette earlier or something. He likes to point out if you were to look at the combined ratings of the territories at the time at peak territory wrestling, there was between 30 and 40 million people a week watching wrestling. Nowadays, yeah. a, sh- a show like SmackDown or Raw gets 3 million viewers and it's something to celebrate. I mean, yep. you're you're you've literally lost ninety percent of your audience, and you're going to act like it's wrestling is the biggest it's ever been. I know, and and you know, the, you talk about Vince taking it out of the dimly lit places. For me, there was a, a big turning point in Philadelphia when Vince used to run the the Philadelphia Arena every other Saturday night. When you walked into that arena, and I don't know whether you guys have ever been in the Philadelphia Arena. It's burned down now. It's long gone, but you would smell cigarette smoke. You would smell sweat. You would smell liniment. You would smell the hot dogs and the, and the, and the cigar smoke, and you would smell popcorn. And you would walk in there, and there was smoke around the lights, and there was just such a presence. You felt like you were at an event. When he took it from there to the spectrum, which was so antiseptic and so removed from the fans, you know, you, weren't, you were no longer right there. There were no smells. There was nothing you could really associate with wrestling. I remember that feeling. When I first went to the, to the Spectrum, I said, this doesn't feel the same anymore. It's just not, it's just not the same. And, and there was so much about wrestling that you could associate with it. You know, the, the sounds, the smells, of the fans, the people. It's, when you bring it into the bigger arenas and the bigger locations, it just loses its appeal, at least for me. 
I'll speak for me. I can understand that. As as we wrap up, uh, I can't help but thank you enough for your time. Benny, uh, we're coming to the end of the interview. Last question to you. What are you thinking? Well, I, I do want to make a quick comment because my, my first show, D.C., was at the Island Garden in West Hempstead. My dad took mm. me. I was 13 years old. The main event yep. was Bruno versus Tor of Tanaka. And wow. I, I can still remember, like, you know, you, you smelled the cigarettes, the beer. But there was, like, a buzz in the crowd. And, yeah. um, and, and especially when, you know, when they saw Bruno and I, it's my earliest re- wrestling memory, but it, I'll never forget it, that they started bouncing off the ropes. And when they collided, it, it felt like the ground shook. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, they, they had to hit really hard. And it, as it turned out, Bruno got up, uh, right at the 10 count. So he, he won the match, but like, you know, we we're going there, like thinking like, man, this guy, Bruno, you thought that, uh, Toro Tanaki, first of all, you were afraid of him. As a kid, yep. second of all, he was he like him, George Steele, all those guys. You thought, man, this could be the guy that 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 takes the title away from Bruno. We were that much, <clears throat> excuse me, into it. But so my last question, DC, is you know Dan and I, uh, we we pretend to think we have a wrestling time machine. Um, okay. So if we were to get into that wrestling time machine and go back to the early '80s and uh, meet DC Drake, the 23 year year old wrestling rookie. And tell them that uh, you're going to have a, a, a wrestling career. You're going to be a promoter. You're going to be in corrections. You're going to be in uh, addictions counseling. You're going to work for a law firm, which we haven't even gotten into yet. You're going to be an advocate for the elderly. You're going to do all that, you know, And, and before you're ready to hang it up. What would you tell us? I would tell you all the other stuff is ridiculous because all I wanted to be was a wrestler. And so I would say if I got to that point of being a wrestler, then I would go all the way. I'd, I'd be in it for 20 years. I would never, at that point, knowing what I know, what I didn't know at that point, I would never have thought of anything else outside of the wrestling business. So I would be very pleased to hear that I, that it was a rookie wrestler, and very happy to know that I was in the business. Well, let me let me ask you then to expand on that a little bit. If Benny and I were to show up in our, as Benny said, the proverbial time machine to to your first. You know, going back to your your early days in New Jersey, and, and this is you know 1980s, and tell you, hey, for, uh, almost 40 years from now, people are still going to want it. You, we're still going to remember you. We're still going to hear your story. Well, what do you think to that? I, I'm honestly very humbled by it. I never saw myself as being even you know sitting here. I don't see myself as being special. I did what I enjoyed doing. I had a chance to hopefully give others a chance to do what they did and enjoy it. And I, I, I really don't see myself as being anything in the business other than you know maybe local and. But I, I am very humbled when I hear people say things and. Yeah, I'm very I'm very proud of, of that. I really am. Well, that's that's incredible. And again, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, before we let you go, um, I'll give you the opportunity. We always do. Do you have any? Uh, social media plugs, any upcoming events you want to hype, anything like that? No, nothing really. Just, you know, I, the, the work I do right now with another law attorney, I, I do run the um, uh, I run the website for him. Uh, I, I work with a lot of his clients, again, older people, because of my background in mental health and addiction. I help getting get some of his older clients into help if they need it. Um, I also do presentations for him you know, on, on senior bullying, which is a big issue and, um, and drug addiction among seniors. 
And that's really my uh, my passion today and something I enjoy doing and hopefully have a long, have some time to do it, you know, before you have to retire again. It's funny, you're, you're basically, same thing with me, uh, seniors, and we, you know, we want to help seniors. Yeah, especially when you see what, you know, what's, what's happening today. And goodness, one of the things I'm hearing right now with all the inflation and everything else, we have a number of seniors that are calling uh, Attorney Connolly, that's his name, R.J. Connolly, and saying, you know, I, I'm stuck on this this limited income. How am I going to heat my house this winter? And even though he doesn't do that kind of work, you know, he he does have connections with, you know, a lot of social service agencies, and he refers them to that. But it's amazing, that, you know, to hear the, the fear and the, and the concern in the seniors that are calling the, the, uh, the firm. So, yeah, I think... We still need to work with people our age and and help them anywhere we can, any way we can. I totally agree. You see, that it was about ten years ago. Ten years ago, I worked for uh, local government here in Pasco County. I was actually the uh, actually started as the accountant for the elderly nutrition division, mm. and um, I would uh, on my lunch hour volunteer to deliver meals. And I'll never forget. I knocked on this one lady's door, and she opened the door, and it was uh, it felt like I was walking into an oven. And I said, well, you know, don't you have your air conditioning on? And she said, oh, no, I have fans. She probably had like seven fans, which all they were doing was blowing the hot air, like, you know, all over the place. Yeah. And yeah. she she made the comment, I, I said, you know, about the air conditioning. She said, well, I can either pay for my medications or keep the air on. And I'm thinking like, how sad? I mean, this this woman probably was, led a productive life, you know, held a job for years and years, contributed to society. And now she's got, a, you know, 80-something years old has to live in an oven. So as it turned out, like you mentioned, um, there's other, there is resources available. I went back to uh, my human services person and as luck would have it, they had something called eHeap. I'm an elderly, it was, it was with the um, Department of Elder Affairs, but it was a grant mm-hmm. and they would pay their bills for a number of, you know, a number of periods. And I got the woman hooked up, but like just how sad that you live your whole life, you work, you contribute, and then you're, you're relegated to a position like that. Right, and that's one person you run into, and there's probably thirty that you haven't run into like Absolutely. that. Absolutely, it is really sad that you know, like you said, they've been productive and they reach a point where they retire, and you know they're forgotten about. And it's, and you know, it's sad that's something that we do try to do and and um, help any way we can. Besides, is you know the elder law work that he does. He also does a lot of social service stuff too, which is something I really admire about the guy. That's no, a good thing. Absolutely. And it's extremely admirable, that kind of good work, because they, you know, as a history major myself, they've always said the, 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 you know, societies, governments, people, you're always judged by how you treat the most vulnerable of your citizens. And mm. the fact that, you know, you, you do what you do to help them is, is incredible. So a special shout out to you on that one. Well, thank you. And there are plenty of people like me that, you know, that don't even get recognized and it's kind of sad, but there's a lot of good work that goes on, you know, people out there doing it. So I still believe in goodness of people and they still believe that we, you know, there's a lot of people that are good inside and, you know, with all the negative stuff we hear, we don't always hear about all the good work. Agree. Absolutely. Well, DC Drake, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We'll definitely uh, reach out to you at, at, as we get this posted up to uploaded, we'll make sure Benny gets you the links. You can share as you see fit 
So again, thank you so much. This has been great talking to you, and we always love hearing the the old timey stories. Well, Benny and Dan, thank you guys very much for having me on again. It's, it humbles me a lot that that I'm even remembered, and it's you know, it's amazing to me. But thank you so much. You're very welcome, sir. Yes, sir. Have yourself a, have yourself a fine evening, and like I said, we'll we'll send everything to you and reach out to you again. Okay, now it's time to watch the Yankees and the Mets, right? Yeah, and seven on, three judge two home runs. Yeah, they're on DBS tonight. So, okay, <laughs> thank you guys. Have Take a good care. night, sir. You too. All right, sir. good night. Another great talk with a good old timer, Benny, and and not just a, a someone who's left a legacy on wrestling, but just a genuinely true good human being. It's refreshing to see that with all the the, the crap that dominates the news cycles today. And he just kept going. I mean, he'd be done with one thing, and then he'd start something else and be great at that as well. Yeah, pretty much a, a long history of putting putting one foot forward and and succeeding. And and I mean, you look at, at corrections, the law firm, the charities, pretty much everything he did. Even when he when he acted as wrestling, he talked about wanting to connect with the fans and the free tickets to the kids. I mean, it's all a, a literal lifetime. As geez, the third time today I've used that word. Uh, a, a full lifetime of just service to 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 others and that's awesome to see yep and you know again the the term legend is used loosely but the 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 gentleman dc drake he is an east coast legend for sure absolutely and i know you're you talked about it anybody from the new york new jersey area that grew up in in, as we did at the time you know you you knew him you saw the name you saw the faces and it's good stuff yes and uh, we got Speaking of good stuff, we got plenty of good shows coming up. We're, we got you and I, Benny, we, we keep talking, planning. We got a lot of good stuff coming up in the fall as we as we inch closer and closer to episode 100. Well, I think my contract's coming up for rene- renegotiation, so we'll, we'll have to talk about We'll do that offline, though. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do the, uh, the old Saturday Night Live Andy Kaufman thing. I'll, I'll have a vote on the fan page. We can see if we uh, what, what the crowd thinks about keeping you around. Or maybe what we could do is that one of George's shows in VCW, we could do like a public uh, a contract signing. Man, those in-ring contract signings always end poorly. <laughs> As my, I mean, you know, actually, uh, uh, speaking of which, uh, we got a lot of good, uh, we got some good connections there coming up uh, on the show as well. And then they just announced some more matches for our friends at VCW for their upcoming October event. So we'll, as we get closer, we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And uh, a lot only of- six more weeks till, uh, uh, Jimmy Valiant's boogies wrestling camp and hall of fame museum, their 30th graduation on October 2nd. Yes. And, uh, again, Benny special they've got a special guest graduation, a uh, guest graduate or what's a graduate. Yeah. I'll be doing event. a run in on the, uh, NWA show the following week. Just so you're not surprised. Right. Well, I mean, uh, hey, not too many people, you know, next time we mention AEW after that show, you can say, hey, I graduated from the same academy that Adam Page did. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I don't know if you own any butterfly jeans. I'm not sure. No, I do not. I don't I don't <laughs> own any jeans of any kind. There you go. Well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spaciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Adios.